I'm Gregory Berg. This past Wednesday, the 30th of November, would have been the 100th birthday of the late Weston Noble, one of the great towering figures of choral music in the second half of the 20th century. In honor of that occasion, I want to replay in its entirety a morning show interview that I was privileged to record with Weston Noble back in the spring of 2008, during the year that he spent out of retirement serving as interim director of choral activities at Carthage College, where I was and remain a member of the music faculty. Ahead of that conversation, here is a portion of a recording made by the Nordic Choir and Weston Noble of Paul Chesnikoff's magnificent Salvation is Created. And in my somewhat biased opinion, that is the singing of uh, one of the greatest choral ensembles in all the world, the Nordic Choir of Luther College in Decorah, Iowa. I say my biased opinion because it was my privilege to be a member of the Nordic Choir uh, for uh, three of my years at Luther and under the direction of the distinguished Weston Noble, who led the Nordic Choir for over 50 years and uh, retired from that position a couple of years ago although he has remained active as uh, one of the country's busiest and finest clinicians for various choral events, and then received a call this summer from Carthage College from the music department chair, Jim Ripley, with an extraordinary invitation, which he accepted. And as many of you, I'm sure, know, Weston Noble is serving as the uh, very special guest conductor this year of the Carthage Choir. And also, this coming Sunday evening, we'll be uh, on hand for the third annual Messiah Sing-Along at First United Methodist Church. I uh, feel uh, exceptionally privileged to be speaking to uh, one of the most important mentors that I have had in my life and uh, to uh, ask him about uh, some of the important moments in his long, distinguished career, not only as a choral conductor, but also as a very fine conductor of bands and orchestras and uh, a career which is taken him all across the country and indeed all over the world. Weston Noble, 
we welcome you to the morning show. Oh, thank you, Greg. It's an honor to be here, especially after that introduction. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've been thinking about that introduction for a long time, so I'm, I'm glad this is that's finally here. I think it's intriguing to people when somebody as well-known as you, as distinguished as you, as famous as you are, comes out of a teeny, tiny hometown. Uh, why don't you tell our listeners, first of all, where you are from? I'm from a town called Riceville, Iowa. <clears throat> it's in not quite the northeast part of, of Iowa, but not quite in the north central either. It's just sort of right in between in rich farmland. And my grandfather uh, homesteaded there. And the family farm is, well, the farm is still in the, in the noble family. Mm. So that's, that's the roots of my heritage. So you grew up on a farm. Yeah. What kind of a farm was it? Well, at that time, it was all-purpose farm, you mm. know. So we had our milter cows and picked up the uh, eggs from the chickens and just did everything, you know. We just don't necessarily picture uh, a distinguished musician springing out of that kind of background, and yet here it is. Uh, at what point in your life did you start to realize that music was something very important to you? The very first memory I have was uh, when I was five, and uh, my mother was trying to get me to take a nap, and I just wouldn't settle down. And so she leaned over and she said, Weston, would you like to take piano lessons? Well, something inside me just leapt for joy, I guess, because I couldn't think of going to sleep. I was so excited. And I remember everything about my first piano lesson, even though my feet would, didn't begin to touch the pedals. Hmm. That's the first time I knew that there was something special about music to me. Hmm. You went on to study, I believe, the clarinet. Mm -hmm. When did that begin? Uh, that began when I was uh, a first-year student at, in high school. Oh, so you were... That, it took a little while for you to find the clarinet. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Being in the, on the farm and going to a one-room country school, you didn't have the accessibility of a band director right in the school, you see. Now, in your daily life, let's see, before you, you got to high school, uh, in what way did music play a role? I mean, like, there was, was there an old phonograph in the farmhouse, or were there other ways in which music was part of your daily life? It would be part of my daily life, only in that I was the one that practiced the piano. And I was quite fascinated by the radio and music on the radio, but that came out more when I was in high school. And um, I can name the, the, the conductors of the New York Philharmonic and the NBC Symphony and the Bell Telephone Hour and the Firestone Hour and all of those things. Are, but that's more in high school than grade school. Mm. In grade school, the only, our music uh, was simply that they would play a recorded uh, record of the piece and we would learn it by heart and sing it back to the teacher. That was it. That was it. Uh, you have siblings. Uh, were they also at a young age interested in music as you were? Um, yes, I have four. Well, four of us um, are very active and have been active in music. And uh, I was the first one. And then the next one uh, 
was uh, head of the music department at Kamehameha uh, School in, in Hawaii, which is the richest private school in the world. Mm -hmm. Most people don't know that, but mm -hmm. it is very prestigious school for the Hawaiians. Then my two youngest brothers and sisters are twins, and they are both have been both college teachers, choral directors, and pianists. So this does run in the family. Yes, it came from my grandfather, Greg. My grandfather was a, a wonderful tenor, and we had no piano in our church. And I can see him yet. The minister would announce the hymn, and he would lean back against the pew and get his foot going and and start leading the singing. And I can hear the pitches that he used to use, and I think he had perfect pitch. Huh. So he would just, he'd have to choose what note we're starting on to yeah. sing these hymns? Oh, yeah. Wow. So it skipped a generation. You don't really look to your mother and your father as having much in the way of musical gifts. Oh, yes. My father was a tenor, but he wasn't what my grandfather was. But <clears throat> one day after church, my father was singing tenor with the hymns, and I said, Dad, how do you know what... You don't read music. How do you know how to, what notes to sing? Oh, well, I don't know. It just feels okay. You know, that was his answer. So, so there was talent there. Now, at what point in high school, as you took up the clarinet, did, did you start to realize that you really needed to devote yourself to music in the way that led you up eventually, yeah. of course, to what you achieved? Uh, at, at the end of my first year in high school, uh, we were having a band rehearsal, and there was something magical about the piece that we were sight reading, especially the brass. And all of a sudden, I got a joy rush up and down my back. And I looked at the clock, and it was 20 minutes eight after 8, Monday morning, May 5th. And I was just hooked from then on. Did you know at that point that you wanted to be a conductor? I mean, was that what you were aspiring to? Um, I'm not sure, but I remember when I was, a, I think, a junior, uh, I would want everyone in the family to be in bed on Sunday nights because of the farm that we went to bed early. And there was a radio program that came on sponsored by Bear Osborne, and they had a choir and if everybody was in bed, I'd sneak over into the mirror in front of the, it was in the buffet, and conduct. And I'd go to bed happier than any other night of the week. And I have no idea where beat one was or beat four, but I just, <laughs> I just lived. And I call that a little child that's in each one of us. And when that child gets fed, it just gets so happy. Mm. Was that Fred Waring on the radio? Do I remember oh, that right? Oh, that one wasn't, but Fred Waring. I grew up on Fred Waring. Mm. I'd get my cows milked and cattle fed just in record time to get in to hear <laughs> Fred Waring. And especially on Christmas Eve when they sang Oh Holy Night. Mm. Yeah, those are great memories. Mm. Well, you end up going off to college to... Uh, my alma mater, your alma mater, Luther yeah. College in Decorah, Iowa. Do I remember that you were a young man when you started there? Yes, I was 16. Mm -hmm. Was that common back then to start college? No, that no, 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 no. I was the youngest person in my class. Yeah. And uh, tell us about your experience there. I mean, what was most crucial 
in, in your development as a musician? I had taken piano all the time, and I decided that I wanted to have a change, and so I picked up organ for a year, and I loved that. And I continued playing the clarinet, and then took up piano again. And then the honor <coughs> that was given uh, to juniors was to be the soloist for the commencement people as seniors. And so I, I did the Liszt Piano Concerto in E-flat. That probably was my highest technical achievement. Wow. And, but I got to do lots of student conducting when I was a senior. And then I knew this, this had to be it. That's all. Now, it's so interesting that, I mean, most people think of you primarily as a, as a choral conductor. Yeah. And, of course, eventually at Luther, that was your sole focus. But for many years, you also did direct the band. Yeah. And so much of what we've talked about thus far has been more instrumental than, than choral. Mm -hmm. um, where was it that, uh, aside from, you know, your Sunday night reverie with the radio, when did you start to realize that you also had a strong calling as a, as a choral musician? Uh any class that had anything to do with a choir or any uh, activity. There's a, a wonderful um, hymn, the Norwegian hymn, Behold a Host Arrayed in White. They talk about the white robe choir. Oh, that would send me into a trance, you know, just to think. So that becomes my favorite hymn. The choral was strong all the time along with the instrumental. Mm -hmm. So what is the year you graduated from Luther? Graduated in 1943, mm -hmm. as the war was really underway, as right. we know. Um, you actually saw combat in the Second World War as a tank commander. And in fact, if I understand, I've never actually, we've never talked about this, but uh, I know that you were present or some sort of participant in the Battle of the Bulge, if I remember correctly. Yes, we were all set to make a big push to take Cologne. And uh, in fact, the artillery was already laying down the barrage. And all of a sudden, everything stopped. We didn't know why, but the word had come down that, that there was a breakthrough in Belgium south of us. And that's what we call the Battle of the Bulge. And so everything was to go down there. And so we got in our tanks and our or half-tracks and so forth, and went straight down to Belgium. Hmm. I wonder um, what the experience of, of being part of the Second World War and part of something like the Battle of the Bulge, how that remains with you to this day. I mean, do you feel like you can point to certain things that you learned or certain ways in which maybe as a, as a human being you grew uh, I mean, what sort of difference did that ultimately make uh, in, in your life, if it did make any kind of mm -hmm. significant difference? Um, <clears throat> the only way that one can survive in battle is hate. You have to, you have to feel so strongly against the person that you're supposedly going to terminate their life. And I, I had that feeling because of Hitler 
and I felt that everybody was so loyal to Hitler and so on and so forth, which wasn't necessarily the case. But that's how I prepared myself for that. It just happens. And then towards the end of the war, I thought, well, now, what am I going to be like when the war ends? And the minute the war ended, that, that hate was gone. They were just like anybody else. Mm. And I had compassion uh, with them. That's probably the singular most uh, profound realization. Also, um, we got off maneuvers one time, and we'd been on maneuvers all November and December and January and into February, and we're never allowed to go into a single building. And we slept outside every single night in trees or whatever place we could get to if it was wet. And we were then moved to Fort Jackson, South Carolina, in some old army barracks with a pot-bellied stove. And the first night in there, it was raining. And I was dry, and I was warm, and I thought I was in the Waldorf Astoria in New York City. <laughs> and I've never quite lost that appreciation. Hmm. When one has experienced deprivation, then yeah. the smallest of blessings really uh, mean a lot. Do you feel like, uh, as someone who's in a something of a leadership position, do you feel like uh, any of that carries over to all you've done since as a conductor, as a leader of ensembles, with the leadership lessons from that experience? I think so, because uh, in, a, in a tank or whatever small unit you're in, each one's life depends upon the other. So there's a, a terrific amount of loyalty and uh, depth of, of uh, concern. And so I had a chance to go back to Paris during the Battle of the Balls and entertain troops because I play piano. I, wouldn't, I could not leave my, my uh, friends. I, just, I, I felt I would have betrayed them. Well, in other words, that's a, a esprit de corps within a group. Mm. And when you're conducting, what do you want? You want esprit de corps within that group. You want loyalty, and you want each one depending upon the other. There mm. is a carryover. That's right. Mm. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking today on the morning show with, with my highly esteemed mentor from Luther College, Weston Noble, who now I can say is also from Carthage College, in that he is serving this year as a very distinguished guest conductor, interim conductor of the, of the Carthage Choir. We are talking about his uh, long and, uh, and marvelous uh, musical career. And uh, after the Second World War, uh, where does life take you? Life was all set for me to go to the Juilliard School of Music in New York because I was accepted and I was packing in the morning to take the noon train to become a student at Juilliard. And all of a sudden, I sat down on the side of the bed, and I said to myself, I just can't pack. I guess I'm not going. So I went downstairs, and I said, Mom, I'm not going to Juilliard. What? You're not going to Juilliard? No. What are you going to do? I'm going to pick up the Des Moines Register and find a high school that needs a music teacher. And I ended up teaching a little high school. The total enrollment was 93, <laughs> and 75 of the 93 were in the mixed chorus. Wow. And I was there, had the band and the choir, 
and the English literature class. I never had English <laughs> literature. That's the way they did. Hmm. And I stayed there two years. And where was there? Hmm? Was that in Iowa someplace? Yeah, it's just uh, it's a little tiny town in north central Iowa. Hmm. Yeah. Do you have you ever stopped to try to sort out what happened on that morning in terms of what held you back from going to Juilliard? Oh, absolutely. If I had gone, I would have gone out there and been so disillusioned because who's ever heard of the choir at Juilliard? Mm. I wouldn't. I wouldn't have been getting any training in my field at all. I wouldn't have been preparing myself to to teach students in a high school, and I just know that there was somebody who had a hand on my shoulder and said, young chap, this is not where you're supposed to be now. Hmm. You're supposed to go out and find out how to work with students in a small school. You're supposed to go out and teach. And of course, that was exactly hmm. right. Now, if, if we uh, could step back in a time machine and be a fly on the wall and uh, watch you in action with those first choir rehearsals, as a young man in that little high school, what would we have seen? Would we have seen very <laughs> impressive work that would have knocked our socks off? I wonder what you would have seen, Greg. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not sure. I know you had seen someone who's very enthusiastic. First rehearsal, I got three chords in tune, and that was it. <laughs> and I just thought I would reach the moon. Oh, my goodness sakes. Uh, no, I... I think, I think you had seen somebody who was very, very romantic in his approach to things. And, <laughs> and uh, I had a guest clinician come in once, and after the clinic, he came up to me and he said, Weston, you're just all over the place. You've got to get yourself focused, you know. So I was retarding here and, you know, the, all the excesses. Well, you eventually start to grow out of that and become a little bit more cerebral. Mm. But at the, at the time, but I I know that I was enthusiastic, and I think that's what the students caught, and I think that's why we had a good time together. Now, did you head from that tiny high school back to Luther? Is that, or is there another y step yeah, in the, well, in the yeah. chain? Well, yeah, my, you're certainly asking the right questions, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> um, I decided that I would quit teaching and go back to school and get my master's degree, and so I chose the University of Michigan. Went out there, was enrolled in my second summer school, no, my third summer school, and um, got my apartment, got a roommate and everything. This offer came from Luther to teach for one year for the police replacement of a man who had suddenly, his wife had gotten a job at New York City Center Opera. And uh, so, here I was offered this permission, I mean, this uh, place to teach. And I went around and asked every single teacher what I should do. What do you think they said, yes or no? Yes to go or no not to go? What do you think oh, they said? Oh, that's a good question. Depends on how generous of spirit they were. I every single one of them said no. Stay here. Yeah, I would, I would think it would have been hard to let you go, and they probably were fearful for you, too. Yeah. Then on Friday afternoon, I had a piano lesson, and I asked my piano teacher. She says, what's your goal in life? I said, I want to teach in college. Well, for goodness sakes, take this job, get it on your record, and be ahead of everybody else. Huh. Man, I ran so fast for that phone to call Luther and say, 
I'll come for a year. And of course, I like to think, boy, was it a long year. <laughs> Over half a century you were there. Yeah, what did it, seven years. What did it feel like uh, to, to be back on that campus not all that long after you had been a student there? And, be, and of course, you're not the first person in history to, to go through that, but uh, I should think that that would have been interesting. It was interesting because in the first choir I had at Luther, the first Nordic choir I had, I had at least a, a half a dozen GIs, you know, mm. and they were practically my same age. Mm. But somehow they showed me the right respect and uh, things moved along. If we would have, uh, if we would compare the way you conducted choirs and led rehearsals and interacted with students, uh, is the Weston Noble of of uh, nineteen forty eight profoundly different from the Weston Noble of two thousand seven, or or at least in the most essential ways, it, it, were you very much the same person then as you are now? Um, that's quite a question. <clears throat> I can answer it th one way, th in this way, in this manner. I w at about my third year at Luther, I was asked to lecture uh, <coughs> on any topic I wanted to the state convention of the Wisconsin uh, music educators. So I, p I chose the topic of the psychology that's involved in a, having a good rehearsal. What's what right psychological steps can contribute to a fine rehearsal? And Greg, to this day, I go back to that, that, that uh, lecture that I wrote. Huh. So and then that, I have not changed. I'm sure that I'm much more academic now, so to speak. I have much more knowledge, and I'm probably not quite as wild, so to speak, you know, <laughs> in, in my emotional uh, outbursts and so forth. But the, the, the kernel part of it was there. It mm. was just letting the, the plant grow. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I have to say that one of the things that, and I, I've told you this before, that one of the things that has so impressed me among many things this year in playing for the, the choir and, and seeing you every day in rehearsal is, is the fact that the, the essentials are all what I remember exactly at Luther, and yet many of the specifics are different. That since I graduated from Luther in 1982, uh, you do different warm-ups, many of them than we ever did, and you, you, you talk about certain principles with different kinds of images than you did back then. Uh, and that clearly, over these last 25 years, you, you have still been learning and, and growing. And I don't think everybody lives life that way. I think some people get to a place and achieve a certain status and, uh, and probably pretty much stop learning and growing. And clearly, at some point, you made a decision that that was not going to be you, that you were going to continue to learn. I guess that Mother Nature has something to do with that, but that's true. And uh, my goal is to take some, whatever principles we have to use to be successful and make them as simple as possible so that the average singer can understand what we're talking about. 
and not be way up in some stratosphere, you know, but be, and use illustrations that are very easy to understand. Um, that's my goal, to keep simplifying what I do. I sometimes think of what people would think who are not really involved in music or choirs if they would sit in on a rehearsal and would hear some of the images that you like to use. I'm trying to think of some of the most famous. I mean, like you might talk about, oh, don't hit that note so hard. You need to sing it like you're stroking the back of a cat. Yeah. Or don't drag in mud on your mother's carpet. Now, what does that have to do with singing? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> or, you, oh, you need to sing this phrase like you're a Cadillac driving through whipped cream. I remember that. <laughs> so the interesting pictures we, we, we use. And, you know, and clearly, you think something happens when you use images and language yeah. in that way that is sort of beyond the basic. Yeah, because, you see, the basic is out of our mind, right? I mean, where there's certain basic principles. But if you're going to bring them into being, and this is true in teaching literature too, if you're going to bring them into being, you have to use the gift of imagination so that each one of them imagines, oh, this is supposed to be sung like a ballet dancer and not uh, a elephant <laughs> or something like that. Or if you want something that's very broad and stately, Come on, can't you just imagine Prince Philip and Queen Elizabeth coming down the aisle to get married in Westminster Chapel? You know, and then they kick, their imagination kicks in. And well, what color would you use for the tone? That I oh, making? yeah, you like to ask that a lot. In fact, we should maybe talk about that for a second, the fact that in a rehearsal, uh, and this is something uh, that I certainly have done, as so many of your protégés have over the years, is that you really spend a lot of time in rehearsal asking the choir members questions. Mm -hmm. Tell us why you think that's important and what, what is gained. If the director is primarily teaches through facts and, and uh, requests and so forth, the stu average student forgets 75%. So any teacher teaching any academic sense, if the teacher takes the initiative of always leading, the students forget 75% of it. Mm. But if you hook in the imagination, that percentage uh, drops drastically because each student then has taken ownership of what maybe what a poem is supposed to say or what, what is this line of the poem? Or what, why this incident in, in the story, of the, uh, if, if this, they're reading a story? If they can picture it in, the, in their minds, they begin to own it. And I like to say, now pretend that you're a set designer in New York and you're going to stage this. And now, how many people are on stage? You know, and well, and how, what's the lighting on stage? What's the color of the, of the clothes and so forth? And they, they, we get a common emotional response to a, a fact. Mm. That's what it is. And taking it beyond the facts is then part of the Taking it beyond the fact. That's mm. right. Now, I, I'm glad this question is occurring to me. I think I would regret it if I hadn't asked this. For many years, you were not only the director of the Nordic Choir at, at Luther, but also the director of the bands. In fact, mm -hmm. people are always surprised when they hear that when I grew up in Decorah 
and would often be taken to music concerts at Luther as a youngster, 10, 11, 12 years old, sometimes dropped off you know, to be there all by myself. What I remember most vividly of you is in front of the band. The band concerts made a tremendous impact on me, and I never blew into an instrument uh, as long as I lived, but I, those were very powerful experiences for me. Now, some of what we've described and what I know of you as a director, of course, of, of choirs, do you do the same thing in band rehearsals? And are you thinking yeah. about the same kinds of things, like engaging imagination? Yes. Oh, <clears throat> I surely do. What does this remind you of? Or uh, is this a soldier marching down the street? Or is it a ballerina, you know, or something? Just, no, I use a great deal of that. In some ways, even more. Because the band doesn't have a text. Right. I, it's so funny for you to say that because I guess because there's no text, I, would, I was sort of imagining you not doing that. Mm -hmm. And, of course, right. you're saying just the opposite, that because there's no text, because you're not singing some song of the angels, you're playing some s piece of music with no text, right. it becomes even more crucial mm -hmm. to do that. Now, and that takes me to one more thing. A band has to play with emotion. Now, most bands don't play with emotion, especially if they're marching bands and so on and so forth. Now, I'm a band director now. I remember that. <laughs> and choirs are apt to not sing without emotion. They'll, they'll be schooled to do the technique. Well, how does one get emotion into the tone if, in, in performance, regardless of the medium? And the only way that you get emotion in the tone is through the gift of imagination. And that's got one of God's special gifts to us. That's what separates us from, from animals, for example, that we have that gift of imagination. And when, when the, the computer can't pick it up anymore when it's in the realm of imagination, this is something that cannot be a stereotype. But that is when things become alive and you own it personally in your spirit and then you, you relate to it when you're performing it. Mm. It's just that simple. Mm. Well, and, and those, that kind of experience stays with you. I mean, for as long as Absolutely. you live. That you'll forget the fact, won't you? <laughs> you'll forget the fact. Most of them. <laughs> but you won't forget the, the effect of the fact. Right. Which comes out in the imagination. Yeah, yeah. Since we're talking about choirs and bands, I want to ask you something else. Uh, several years ago, Jim Ripley, the department chair at Carthage and director of, of, the, of the bands there, uh, invited me along on the band's uh, 125th anniversary tour to a solo in the Copeland Old American Song. It was so much fun. One of the most intriguing things about it was I just couldn't believe how different band tour was from choir tour in that my recollection of choir tour, I, I enjoyed it at the time when I was a student, but those couple of years I was responsible for the Carthage Choir, uh, I remember choir tour being kind of complicated and, and, uh, and emotions kind of running high and friendships and romances and soap operas and all kinds of stuff behind the scenes. And when I was along in this band tour, I just felt like, like bands are just put together differently and you just kind of show up and you you play the music and you have a good time and then you climb on the bus you go to the next place and there just seemed like kind of a simplicity and directness to it it felt like a whole different animal to me 
I wonder uh, in all the years that you led both choirs and bands, if if you agree at all that there is kind of a different dynamic sometimes at work in bands versus choirs, or oh, not so much. Absolutely, Greg. Absolutely. And it's not easy sometimes to verbalize it. But uh, first of all, in choral, if you don't feel well, headache or whatever, you don't sing well. Mm. But you can still play C, <laughs> you know? You can still blow into your you clarinet. You can still blow into your horn. That's exactly <laughs> right. So there's that one fundamental thing. And then the choirs, people get more emotional and so forth because they have a common text. And they're trying to find the individual emotion in every single piece. Hmm. Well, if you're, if you're doing that, then music is going to spell out in social relationships as well. Mm. And the band is a little bit more objective, although I worked very hard with them through imagination. And uh, you've got four parts in a choir and in a band you've got, gee whiz, what, 12, 15 different parts that are mm. have to become part of a whole. And yeah, it, like cogs in a machine. Yeah, right. it has to fit in. Yeah, it's almost like a member of a band knows exactly who they are and what they are in yeah. that framework. And if you're just one of the eight first sopranos, you kind of wor worry and wonder, yeah. am, I, am I fitting in here? Do I matter here? Uh, right. Yeah. But if you're the only oboe or just two oboes, you know, <laughs> it's different. Yeah, yeah it, it's, it's a different animal. Mm. It really is. Um, when, when I saw you as, as I was a youngster growing up and in those years in the 60s when my mother became your first secretary at Luther, uh, you still had the band. Um, at what point did you let go of conducting the Luther band and, and why? If that's not too personal a question. Yeah. I never let go of the Luther Band, and I never gave up the Luther Band. It was an administrative uh, decision that practice teachers, instead of only going out for a period of weeks, had to go out for a whole semester. And if the, and if the practice teachers had to go out for a whole semester, then the choir couldn't tour at the end of the first semester, and the band tour uh, would tour, band people then would tour over spring break. Well, I couldn't be two people, hmm. and if the band people were going to tour then in the second semester, <laughs> that meant they had to do their practice teaching first semester. Well, that was not good for the band, or vice versa with the, with the choir. So it was a, a, a very complex decision based on staffing, needs uh, of what the new person might bring in, and so on and so forth, and then the rest is history. Was that hard to, I mean, on a personal oh. level, was that tough to give oh, up? Oh, because the night before we were going to leave on tour was when I had to make the decision. Oh, wow. No, wow. Yeah. that was not it. That was a long table prayer that night. <laughs> I bet, I bet. Well, of course, uh, in the intervening years, of course, many, many tremendous years with the, the Luther uh, Nordic Choir and, and other choruses, too. As a freshman, I sang in your oratorio chorus, and uh, I always thought that was kind of intriguing that, uh, that you would have that experience of, of standing in front of the premier 
choir on campus, of course, but then you would also have this other ensemble with a lot of freshmen and maybe other upperclassmen, not quite so gifted or whatever, and, uh, and you really managed to achieve uh, similar magic moments. And I suppose that's part of the, the reality of your career is making magic with whoever you're standing in front of. And we automatically adjust to whatever level that magic is going to be by what you know the talent that's in front of you. And so it's, it's amazing, isn't it? When you go to concerts, you, you adjust to the expectations the minute you understand realities. Yeah, like if I go to my wife's elementary Christmas concert, yeah. I'm, I'm not expecting the Mormon tabernacle. No. I'm expecting just... But you can be tickled to death, can't you? Absolutely. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that. That's an interesting, interesting image. Uh, over the years, you have, in addition to your work at Luther with the Nordic <coughs> Choir, uh, you also did so much work as a clinician all over the country in which you would step in and step in front of essentially a room full of strangers and work for them, work with them for a fairly brief amount of time, and then it's time to put on a concert. Um, you were especially good at that, and it's not a, not a particularly common gift to have. What do you think it is about you as a conductor, as a musician, that made you so, uh, such a good match for those kind of situations? Hmm. Where did, where did you dream up these questions? <laughs> <laughs> well, I've been thinking a lot of these for yeah. a long time. <laughs> well, you know, the answer is, is going to be a little deceiving, maybe. If you are not willing to be vulnerable, in other words, to be open and to be um, free to express how you feel and who you are, any teacher has to be vulnerable. They have to open themselves up to the student. And if, and if you don't ha have that, and then in that vulnerability, when they see that, if you can find as quickly as possible that magic moment, oh, hey, this is going to be pretty good, you know, <laughs> and their eyes kind of open up a little bit and they sit up a little bit straighter and, I said, now see what your potential is. This can be an exceptional group. And if you can get that as fast as you possibly can, uh, then they're, they're pretty much with you. Mm. Then you see if, if the rehearsal is going along and I point to somebody and I'll say, you look like Greg Berg. Boy, you're, you're impressing me the way you're singing. I can't hear you, but I can see you. Now, Greg, will you please come up front and sing for the choir, why the choir gets as still as mice and Greg <laughs> breaks into a cold sweat and sings. <laughs> but that's individuation then. Right. You, you make people feel important. Sure. Well, and, it, and it's so funny how the other people sitting there feel like it's yeah. happening to them too or oh, yeah. it could happen to me next. Yeah. And the way that engages your, mm -hmm. your, your level of attention and focus, yeah. it's incredible. Oh boy! I hope that I'm not next. I hope I'm not next. Then once in a while, you'll they'll come into the department secretary and they'll say, "Luther, they'll say, doesn't Mr. Noble have confidence in me? How come he never asked me?" <laughs> but it takes yeah. a while to get there. Right? Yeah, it starts to become a badge of honor to be uh, brought up front and, and singled out. Um, over the years, of course, 
Nordic is part of a rich tradition of, of wonderful uh, choirs at various Lutheran colleges. Um, and, and certainly among students, people like to, to create all kinds of rivalries in their minds. I never got that sense. I've, I always have had the sense that you deeply appreciated the legacy of, of other great choirs at other great colleges. Can you just talk for a moment about the kind of relationship that relationships you've tried to foster with your, your counterparts, with your colleagues at, at other schools in front of other choirs? Perhaps some of that is the fact that I came to Luther as a Methodist. And <laughs> I, I was not, and I wasn't Norwegian either. <laughs> and I, but, and I, so I, I stood in awe of this Lutheran mystique, you know, in, in, in music. And it, there is one. There's just no question about it. And so not having grown up in it and formed preconceived ideas or known alums that were, went to the other Lutheran colleges, I, I came in as like a little baby, so to speak, you know, and kind of grew with it and stood in awe of what the other schools were doing. And, and boy, of course, it made me work harder to try to keep up with the Norwegians, so to speak. <laughs> uh, but I think that had something to do with it because I just wasn't raised to be an, in awe of the Concordia Choir simply because somebody may have gone to Concordia or that's my pastor was from Concordia or what have you. That didn't exist. Uh, I think that makes sense, mm. you know. One of the uh, things that uh, I think intrigued me as someone who sang under you in Nordic, and, and I certainly could be wrong, I never sang in the St. Olaf Choir, but my sense is that in the St. Olaf Choir, they were, the goal was a certain kind of amazing perfection in which you know, a given song would be polished to perfection and every performance would be nearly identical, you know, down to these very carefully honed details. And my sense was the way that you conducted the Nordic Choir, and as I watch you conduct the Carthage Choir, that that was not necessarily your goal, that, that there would be a wider range among, say, five or six different performances of that same piece, and that, in other words, that your conducting was and continues to be a little more full of surprises. Um, does that sound like it makes sense? Do you think I'm assessing you correctly? No, well... No, there's there's a lot of truth to that because, see, before the Saint Olaf Choir uh, came into being, and they were they were founded before World War One, but they really took off just after World War One when they filled the Metropolitan Opera House in New York City. And before that, choirs just couldn't sing in tune, hmm. and so most choirs were handled and Bach societies and things like that, large choruses that sang with orchestras, and that's how they could sing in tune. St. Olaf comes along, and F. Malius had been in Germany and heard the Bach uh, Tovmanis Chor, the men and boys choir in Bach's church, and heard this pure boy-like sound, and that's easier to tune, isn't it, Greg? Mm, sure. That's much easier to tune. And so he, the, then the early Lutheran music tradition gave choral music the gift of pitch. Hmm. 
And pitch is a technical accomplishment. And if that ingredient hadn't come first, then Robert Shaw would not have been what he is. Hmm. You know, am I making sense? So that that kind of perfection of intonation paved the way for all kinds of other things to be accomplished. That's exactly right. And to get that, you've got to be absolutely precise that you move together rhythmically, don't you? Hmm. Otherwise, the vowel's not going to have that and so on and so forth. No, you're, that's, that's the foundation. Now, then both Concordia and, and St. Olaf, who were conducted by brothers then after a while, uh, began to deviate from that rigidity quite so much, you know. Although for your, your early recordings of the St. Olaf Choir, you just, oh my goodness, you know, the, the soloist goes, lost in the night, you know, and slides up there like Perry Como. And, and wow, I mean, you can't believe that's the early St. Olaf Choir, you know. Oh, it's just, it's wonderful to talk about this. I know for those of you who are not Lutherans and who are not associated with the, the Lutheran music mystique, so to speak, but as a transplant, boy, I, I just can't get enough of it. <laughs> uh, you uh, retired from Luther, is it two years ago? Yeah, two, two full years ago. Two this full is years my, ago. In my, in my third year of that. And as I alluded to at the start of the interview, uh, your phone rang this summer uh, at some point. I know it was after the 4th of July uh, because I remember Jim Ripley coming to me on the 4th of July at a concert and asking me what I thought of this idea of calling you and issuing this invitation, which, of course, I thought was so exciting. Never dreamt in a million years that it would be possible for you to come as you are uh, for such a length of time and indeed now, as it turns out, for the whole year. I wonder if you would just talk for a moment about what this has meant to you uh, to have this completely surprising invitation come your way to accept it and to find yourself uh, in a relatively unfamiliar place in front of unfamiliar students uh, in in an unfamiliar school uh, doing what you love. Well, when they asked me to come for five weeks through homecoming, I didn't have much of a problem accepting that. Then they came back with a letter about two weeks after that and said, would you stay for the whole semester? I, I hesitated there, and, and I would say maybe somewhat the majority of my close friends is now Weston. You better think this over very carefully because you don't know what you're getting into and so on and so forth. And, and I did, and you were talking about my travel schedule. And I was doing lots and lots of clinics, but for some unique reason, this past fall was not as full as the others have been. And I stopped and thought about that. Now, what am I being told? Why isn't it as full? And so I decided on my own, yes, I'm going to go for a semester. It'll probably go faster than I think for, but I'm just going to go try it. So I did. And maybe a third into the semester, well, then they said, well, what would you think of staying for a whole year? Didn't take me long to say yes, did it, Greg? (laughs) No, I don't think it did. No, not (laughs) at all. And it's the perfect place for me to be now. My load is not as heavy. Um, I'm convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt this is where God wants me to be. 
And if he's planted me here, of course he knew ahead of time I was going to be happy. Mm. And I, I am. I've, and I feel a great sense of freedom. And Carthy's kids are some, you know, they're just like good old other people at another, other schools. They're a little bit different in their backgrounds. More city, uh, suburban schools, you know, from um, Chicago and, and what have you. They're a little bit different. But I don't care who you are. If music bites you, you're gone. You're a goner, aren't you? <laughs> and oh, you know. Uh, now here's a good illustration of that. Um, we do the Messiah at Luther every year, as you would do. And one year, the captain of the football team felt that he'd been to enough rehearsals so that he could sing in the chorus. And after the Sunday performance, he came down on the gym floor with those big muscular arms like a quarterback has. And he just grabbed a hold of me and yelled in my ear, Mr. Noble, what happened to me? Why, when we sang the Hallelujah Chorus and Worthy as a Lamb, well, I never felt like that even if I made a touchdown. Now you tell me, what happened to me? Well, I couldn't explain all of that at that time, you know, as if you can't explain it, period. And do you know, I'm sure he's gone to every Messiah performance since then, hoping he'll get that same feeling again. Mm. So that's, that's the power of this that that we're talking about, you know, and and it's available to everybody, mm. you know. Mm. Weston Noble, what a great honor and pleasure to talk with you uh, in this way, and uh, I hope thank we'll get to talk again many times. And I do thank you too, for doing Greg. this. Thank you so much. <laughs>